0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the New Hampshire Business Show. My name is Chris Bostra and today we're here with Ryan Munn from Interchain L L C. How's it going?
1: Great. Thanks for having me here.
0: Okay, so let's get going. We have a lot to talk about today. Yeah. So We'll, uh, we'll start with a little bit of history on you and the business and uh, we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, great. Well, I've got uh, kind of a diverse background, but I've always been interested in startup businesses and entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, I think I was selling stuff on the street when I was uh, seven for some uh, sales leadership club thing. You know? <laughs> nice. Um, my first experience was with vending machines, and in Vermont, there's a very low population density. So I discovered the challenges of that business and yes. got out of that with a bit of a loss, but learned some lessons there. <laughs> um, and I've been involved with With uh, IT, I've had jobs in IT and technology a number of times. I've also gone and worked in uh, uh, agricultural-run greenhouses and uh, always kind of been in and out of education from teaching snowboarding for 15 years as well as working with kids as a therapeutic crisis responder at one point when i was younger okay so all these things have kind of crossed paths Uh, i should probably dial this back a little bit i dropped out of high school went to college for a few weeks dropped out again my interest (laughs) at the time was educational software development (laughs) so i'm still kind of there in that i'm consulting i'm trying to teach people things i'm trying to introduce technology and so Over the past few years, I was working in automotive finance and implemented a number of different technology solutions there uh, and saw an opportunity with the market shifting in blockchain and crypto, which I've paid attention to for a long time, to spin off and start my own firm, uh, consulting in technology implementation for businesses, and take that opportunity to use that as a platform to get involved in a number of other areas that I find very interesting and socially impactful.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. Nice. So real quick, you said you were in auto financing?
1: Yeah, yeah, White River Toyota. I was there for four years, uh, okay. started off in Burlington and transferred down for a finance position down in, in White River Junction, and that's what brought me to the Upper Valley area there. Okay,
0: so working as a finance manager, just getting the loans done? Yep. Okay, yep. I understand that because I sold yeah, cars. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, cool. <laughs> then you moved on to normal stuff, yeah. like blockchain. <laughs> yeah, 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 just that, you know, okay. so. <laughs> cool, so this is where the conversation is going to get a little heavy. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what is blockchain and crypto and all that.
1: Well, it's hard to answer that question, right? Because there's there's on the one hand, um, there's a number of different systems interacting that sort of Mm -hmm. bring this together, right? That that people say that it all started with a white paper that was written uh, by uh, an, an unknown person under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, and he was talking about a decentralized protocol for the management of the exchange of assets, right? Mm-hmm. So the ability to move something, whereas currently you could have a, you know, a, a, a picture or a video file, and you can copy it and send it to somebody else, uh, what this does is creates an environment where you send the unique individual piece of something digital to somebody else, and they have it and you don't anymore. And it eliminates the uh, ability or it creates checks and balances to prevent the double spending or the double usage of a particular unique asset. So, that capability was really written out in a set of ideas. Yeah. And then that was put into code uh, a couple months later and put into effect to create what we know as Bitcoin now. That code has since been sort of copied and, and tweaked and done different things with. There's all kinds of other sort of from the ground up code bases that people have been working with. and reapplying that same concept but ultimately what we did was we took the control and the regulation structure that is the government and we put it into a protocol that's run by software at a relatively low cost and so that is something that was groundbreaking at the time and i think over the past 10 years has started to demonstrate how it really is disrupting the financial regulatory industries into the point where you know, a lot of them have, a lot of large institutions have been kind of on board with at least trying to figure out how to use this technology for a long time. I say that a lot of people see the start there in 2009 because personally, I think the start was back in, you know, DARPA net, right? Open source development has constantly sort of played this leapfrog game with commercial development because open source continues to be developed and then people observe something in open source that they can capitalize on in the markets and they build on it. And then open source continues to develop, but what's being capitalized on is built and ready to go in the market today. So as they're trying to continue to bring in revenue or build new solutions, they keep building on what they brought to market. Whereas open source continues to develop baseline on top of baseline, the fundamental protocols and layers of technology that we need to serve today and the future of technology in society. And what we're seeing with blockchain right now and with with cryptocurrencies and some of the implementations of blockchain for, say, real estate or insurance contracts or gambling even, is the ability to implement systems that create a very low threshold or barrier to entry Mm -hmm. and also operate in a very transparent uh, fashion so that many people can sort of monitor them or audit their functions. And that's really important when we start thinking about autonomous agents, you know, uh, you know, AI driving cars, right? Yeah. We want to be able to, sure, bad things may happen, we cannot say, well, we're never gonna be able to prevent, well, yeah, sure, we don't need to spend time talking about what we can never prevent. What we need to spend time on is taking the chances of something happening from 30% down to 15%, down to 7%, down yeah. to 2%, you know, and, and pushing that needle. And that's where the transparency and accountability provided by blockchain and various methods of distributed data are key to being able to build systems like this that we can trust and have confidence in not only how they function, but on the accountability of the systems, so that we'll be able to establish when errors happen, figure out exactly what happened and why, so that we can address them. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of this that I think just facilitates the continued education or learning curve of society and how do we use our tools.
0: Yeah. Because I think kind of we were talking about, one of the biggest uh, hindrances right now I think to getting into any of this is kind of complicated to get started. Right. And because like I we had talked about a little bit beforehand, I looked into it to be like, okay, I would love to be able to offer these services for, you know, people so they could pay in coin and stuff. But then I have no idea how to get it going because it's all, it, it can get kind of complicated.
1: Sure. It's a number of different pieces that still need to yeah. be sort of plugged in and work together. But yeah. this isn't that different from me trying to implement solutions in a regular business. Yeah. So... You know, whether it's a small business and you've got a contractor or a realtor that needs to understand how to implement the um, document signature, electronic signature process with their normal business processes between people, Mm -hmm. that's a challenge that we all have. Every time we're looking at a change in behavior is a challenge. And when you add the complexity of technology, sometimes it almost becomes a scapegoat, like the technology is too complicated. It's really it's a significant, complicated challenge for humans to change behavior. Mm-hmm. And so if I've got a business that I've been doing for 5, 10, 15 years a certain way to go, oh, well, there's this new tool that's going to make it way easier. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. The fact is you don't realize how much easier it makes your job until like 90 days down the road, right? Yeah. It's that hard shift to change. Oh, you know what? I'm going to email this to you. And you know what? I might need to sit down with a customer so they have an easier time with it too. And they get over that sort of learning curve. But boy, when they can go click, click, boom, it's signed. Everybody's happier. And when you get in the habit of that, and then you think, boy, how did we used to do this? Then it's not such a hard transition. And so I think seeing cryptocurrencies and blockchains in that same same light is key because what we're talking about with blockchain and crypto is an underlying technology. It doesn't have to happen on the surface. Enabling it today, it happens on the surface, and that's the friction that you're feeling. But that's really more of an awareness of the friction in transactions, right? Because when you go swipe your credit card, companies have made it easy. Yeah. But we're all paying a dear price for that ease and convenience. It floats around through five different entities at least every time you swipe a credit card. And though it appears instant to you, that transaction takes days, weeks, or even a month or more to settle. The, the, the friction that exists in that transaction is just more apparent to the end user, but guess what? It's because there's no middlemen in that game, right? You've got some software operating on a protocol basis where everything is pretty transparent, mm-hmm. and then you have yourself and a customer doing a little bit of business with some technology that's a little bit ahead of its time, yeah. right? So I envision a world where, you know, we already have all the Wi-Fi connectivity on our phone. The problem is it's so insecure in the way that it's been implemented because we've got layer upon layer of commercialized technology as we have blockchain start to emerge and other open source methods of development uh, be implemented on a commercial basis where people start demanding that they use social media on an open protocol and social media companies have to go through a paywall to use their data to select or eliminate them from lists it requires users to have a certain amount of education to demand that but once that starts to happen it changes that that relationship yeah. right and so where um, where I see blockchain and open source technology implementing is is. I envision a world where you walk in, you know, kind of like the new Amazon store. You walk in, you don't even take your phone out or your credit card out, right? It's all with your with an account of some kind and there's a frictionless transaction that occurs right with the device in your pocket. And you walk around and go, I want that that and that and you walk out the door and the RFID readers you know uh, read what you purchased and yeah. you know, there's no there's no transactional friction there. That's made possible by cryptocurrencies at scale. Credit cards can pull it off today to some extent, but the reality is all of that clearance, all that settlement time that goes on is an opportunity for fraud from these large institutions. And we may discover it eventually, but it'll take years before we figure out what happened and we actually hold something somewhere accountable, supposedly, or we can implement systems today that keep those transactions transparent and we can keep the systems accountable immediately for how they operate, settle, and clear our transactions. And that can scale to communities of any size all around the world.
0: Yeah. That's pretty cool. Because I know I was actually, just before you, I was speaking to a gentleman. He does, like, small company IT. Mm -hmm. And we we, we were just talking about, you know, these big companies get hacked all the time. And just kind of what you're talking about, um, your information is not safe pretty much anywhere. So, and I think that's also... because I've seen this concern as well when yep. it comes to a cryptocurrency. Because one, again, people don't understand it, right. so you fall back on when they don't understand it. Everything is kind of like this boogeyman right. type feel. Right. So when it comes to this type of stuff, you know how how secure does it get? You know all right. that.
1: Well, here's the reality: the most insecure component in, of all of our systems in the world right now mm-hmm. is right here. Yeah, the people. Right? It's the people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So all the hacks. I mean, most. I can't say all. Most of the hacks that are significant um, are social hacks. Mm-hmm. It's somebody gets fished, or somebody somebody's accounts are violated through some interaction of theirs with the system. Right? Yeah, it's not a, 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 a hacker somewhere in the dark who's running some code that actually accomplishes something. Now there are hacks and exploits like that, and those mm-hmm. occur. And a lot of times we don't find out about the breaches at all, right? Yeah, there's all kinds of breaches that occur. I mean, people's data is all out there. Unfortunately, there's a huge portion of the American public that has all the pieces of their data out there that, you know, whether it's our government or some other agency or anybody out there, if they have those pieces, they can basically put together identities. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is first of all recognize where is the needle in that conversation, right? We people have a reactionary conversation about that and they're talking about, oh nothing's secure anyways, and they just want to give up, right? That like they're a zero yeah. percent success rate. Right. And then other people are like, oh we've gotta, you know, we've got to revamp the system completely, but we've got to be all in control of it, right? And they're all like, we've got to go for a hundred percent, you know, protection. There's a couple components there one the the first problem in design is that those those problems arise out of a centralized silo of data right so equifax for example 145 million records right how many systems did somebody have to hack to get those 145 million records one i mean they may have gone through a couple different computers and servers to get to that one repository but they got to a repository and got everything they were looking for they got a big old pot of gold yeah so the first solution to that problem is decentralize the pots of gold if you've got one coin to go after and you've got to go after 145 million coins that's a lot more work for hacker to go after and that changes the incentive dynamic for going after that reward right and so if we can decentralize certain data points then we can be more secure even if we're using the same the same level of encryption, the same basis of security. Simply, that structural design of mm-hmm. how we store the data changes the the target or the exposure, right? Yeah. So there's those things that we can be talking about that have, I think, a hugely significant impact on the security of our data. But then there's the scalability and actual imp- you know, implementation of those solutions, and we need to get lots of people playing on the same protocols. People yeah agreeing to agree on certain ways of interacting with data and doing business. And that's, again, where I think blockchain has an opportunity to implement solutions that incentivize users from the ground up to start saying, hey, we want this, right? These systems only work and operate based on the existing participation within the system. So if they were really invaluable or they're really not valuable, um, why would anybody be participating? You know, and there's certainly people in the world that might say, Oh, they're scamming or this kind of thing, but the reality is that the the whole base of the system, if you actually read that initial white paper, is that in order to to scam or rip off the system, you have to make a contribution to a certain point of either running enough hardware or running enough, you know, running the right kind of software or making some kind of you know, putting some kind of skin in the game. All these concepts around having an incentive to either choose to use your power to facilitate the system or try to break the system. So if you've spent, you know, whether it's a thousand dollars or a million dollars or a billion dollars on building the hardware needed to try to compromise these systems, would you then take that investment and try to break the thing that you could be adding value to, or would you flip the switch the other direction and say, you know what, I'll just play with the rest of the herd and make this thing more valuable? So that's why it can't just disappear and go away. Yeah. I mean, some of these things can break. And there's certainly, unfortunately, I think the market is riding on the success of, of Bitcoin and some other of these implementations because people perceive this huge risk factor in the technology, whether it's using it or buying in or anything like that. But then once they step over that barrier, they suddenly see this whole world of, of implementations and they perceive them as the same level of risk. And unfortunately that's not the case. There's you know, there's there's bases and layers of open source technology and then there's lots of people trying to put their own little tweaks and experiments and proprietize things that are all over the place now and lots of money flowing at that what's getting lots of attention. But it's the same sort of cycle, right? It's the sort of commercialization of open source technology. Yeah there's this sort of ebb and flow of that happening. And uh, I try to encourage people to stay out of the casino. You know, like really, if you want to get into the technology, certainly look into things if there's opportunities. But a lot of people, I think, just need to dabble a little bit of Bitcoin or Litecoin or something just to start to understand it and start looking for the knowledge and and, uh, information to help them uh, either use the technology or at least have a baseline to start to assess who they do business with, who they vote for. Uh, in regards to how they're going to be using these these technologies and how they're going to approach the, the, the technology and business community.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Because I know, what was it, December timeframe? Bitcoin was lit up. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. And so this is a conversation I've had a couple of times. Yeah. as seeing. Well, the problem was <clears throat> I, I totally get using... Bitcoin is a form of currency. You mm-hmm. know, I understand that concept of you know removing fiat currencies sure. and using it, but when people start using it as an investment option, right? And I'm like, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's really not as well. You know, it's to an
1: Yeah, well, I do, but also, um, Bitcoin fulfills one aspect of an economic equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it served as an economic reward for people who are participating in a network with no reward. So there was a cost outlay <coughs> excuse me, to people running the network that they were not getting any reward for. So they got these digital tokens that at the time were worth nothing. Yeah. And then eventually that recognition of value started to move. And that's gone up and down over time where the cost to produce in that network is greater than the reward but then the reward has come back consistently yeah. and that is a, a factor of a number of, of characteristics of the model around that the deflationary limitation um, the issuance uh, model the math behind how that works there's other models that we could be trying to implement which would be what people call a stable coin which is mm-hmm. just a digital representation and there's a number of them pegged to the u.s dollar now and then they start to float And we could be implementing solutions like that for pricing purposes to basically add transparency and create this sort of, um, you know, hold your money and spend it kind of cash solution. Bitcoin, with this deflationary model, is never really intended to be a cash solution per se, because you're always going to be using a smaller and smaller amount as the world sort of inflates. Um, but what it can do is provide what nothing else in the world truly does and what people try to tout gold for or things like that. And not just Bitcoin, but a deflationary asset, period. A deflationary asset tied to an organization and, and a network uh, can have value. And that's essentially what, uh, you know, what, what gold in theory is, but that's what stocks are for companies, right? It's supposed to be this deflationary asset tied to the value of this real company. So, uh, in the terms of Bitcoin, though, there's no company, right? There's no government. Mm -hmm. There's the broadness and resilience of the network that gives it value. Whereas other things may crash or fail, that is resilient to a lot of different sort of scenarios. And that has value in terms of storing capital that I've earned today and giving me the spending power that I may need from that capital in the future. And that's something that Uh, society lacks in many ways because you know how is it fair that you know say my grandmother may have worked for you know 30 40 years for whatever different companies and then you know she had to also in addition to learning whatever expertise she needed for that job learn how to invest as an expert, too, so that she could maybe get 9% or better out of the markets and be able to have something to retire on. Yeah. How is that fair? We're demanding that people have two completely different levels of expertise in society in order to simply subsist in retirement. Um, there's a there's a key point missing there, and it's uh, it can be provided, I think, by well-structured, well-managed deflationary assets that engage people simply on the concept of save today to have spending power tomorrow. And uh, I think with technology and the challenges that we have with with technology eliminating jobs in many ways, Mm -hmm. we have a whole different perspective that we have to start to employ with how do we value Society, how we value culture, how do we implement solutions, and change the way we think about the sort of nine to five or the you know the gig economy and, and yeah. approach solutions for people that they can really um, uh, engage with and, and embrace.
0: Yeah, as you bring up a really good point with, we're well, just talking about the elimination of jobs across the board and just the way mm-hmm. everything is changing. It's gonna be very interesting to see how kind of all of that plays right. out.
1: Well, that's yeah. a big part of why I took the leap that i did to start the firm yeah um, because i have always implemented technology whether it's to try to make something i'm doing more efficient or to try to make something flow better for a company and in the past in those four years i was worked for toyota it just kind of was like slapping me in the face because you know we're selling cars uh we increase our sales staff a little bit over that time but it the the net average or whatever didn't really go that much. I think we added, you know, a few salespeople over the the years that I was there, but Mm. it went up to, you know, 17 to 20, I think at one point down and it fluctuates. But then the the phone staff, uh, we increased jobs there, but that was because we took on a role that another store was taking on, right? And then uh, after we did that, as we started to get more and more efficient, using CRM technologies, using some document technologies, using just some, some innovative business processes, we continued increasing sales, and we decreased the number of people that we needed on the phone, yeah. and we decreased the number of people that we had in the administrative office. And so there was a, there was a, a streamlining of sort of the costs behind the scenes, and there was an increase of some personnel in, in the sales staff. But proportionately, you know, the sales staff increase was maybe twenty percent, whereas we you know, our, our unit sales were up, you know, almost a hundred percent over that four-year period. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a proportional difference there where we definitely increased productivity, uh, increased profit, reduced some jobs, um, yeah. and you know, and it wasn't like we fired somebody. You know, somebody left, and then it was like, yeah, you know, we can kind of get by without this person for a while. Let's see how it goes, because at the end of the day. Because we're just each getting a little bit more done. Because when we go to look for something, oh, the document's in the folder instead of in a file somewhere. Right. Yeah. It's you know, it's it's on the system. It's available. Oh, there's a you know somebody in, in, in Burlington that needs it. Oh, we can make that available easily. And those kinds of things suddenly eliminate minutes, even hours, from you know just sort of the waste or entropy in an office space. Yeah. And uh, and so I'm looking for ways to be more involved with how do we facilitate the gig economy how do we get broadband into rural communities in vermont new hampshire so that we can create a more sustainable economic structure in those those towns yeah. um how do we get people you know how do we get the, the the grandmothers connected with technology in ways that work for them you know it doesn't need to be overbearing but you know, it might be good for them to know that like there's a power line down because a tree branch fell last yeah. night and it'd be great for them to have that notification that like hey if they turn left out of the driveway they're going to be stuck or maybe in a dangerous spot even and hey, you know, go go around this way today or yeah. something like that. You know, those kinds of things are those tools are there in society, you know, we we see them in big cities very efficiently. I think in rural areas there's a different kind of challenge to really get it into people's hands and show them effectively how important it is for them to use these tools, but also recognize where some of the dangers or boundaries are.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. (laughs) So I think if anyone else is, like, barely hanging on there, too. Sure, um, sure. This is probably a pretty good place to leave off. We still barely scratched the surface of any of this stuff. Yeah, but uh, I think that's a lot for you know the first episode. Absolutely, I would love to do more of this in the future. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) we should definitely set something up Um, for people who want to learn more. Get in touch with you. Definitely learn more. How do they do it?
1: So entertain.live, uh, go online, entertain.live will take you to the YouTube channel that I've done and I've done a number of interviews on there with people from the industry so you can get some insights and perspectives. I've also had some conversations on there with people local in Vermont and certainly open to anybody in sort of the tri-state New England area that wants to connect and collaborate on doing stuff like that. Um, so. Check out those videos. There's some resources in there to connect to some of these programs that are pretty easy, like Manabase. You can connect on there, get a wallet, and they're issuing currency regularly, creating a universal basic income program for the world. Now, the couple of bucks that you might get aren't a big deal to you, but that might be a month's salary in Venezuela. So if you got a friend in Venezuela, get on Manabase, get yourself hooked up, send them a link, get them hooked up, and that could be something that could be effectively changing people's lives uh, as as the, the future rolls out. So uh, interchain.live is me. Um, you can find that, that page and uh, you could also reach out if you went to meet.interchain.live. I take free appointments on that. It's a scheduler, and uh, Calendly, it's actually a great tool. I would show most businesses that are an alternative for saving their time on uh, the back and forth on scheduling. Yeah, Very <laughs> good.
0: Cool. Yeah. Thank awesome. you for coming out today. I know it was a hell of a drive, so sure. yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. very much. No problem.
1: <laughs> thank you for having me. And maybe we'll reconnect, uh, is it the 31st? You're going to be up in the uh, yes. Upper Valley area in yep. uh, Lebanon? awesome awesome yeah. maybe awesome. we can reconnect then
0: yeah if you want to do another one in like a week I, absolutely yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. all
1: for it cool yeah yeah Go sounds on. good yeah i was trying to do a weekly thing with my show for a, are you still recording or,
0: or yeah. it doesn't matter but yeah it doesn't um, matter.
1: Uh, <laughs> i was trying to do a weekly recording with my show and i stuck with it for gosh you can probably see if you look at the dates like i stuck with it for a while and then mm-hmm. just it got tiring trying to juggle it with other things yeah but um you know I do it now and then still, and I try to use it more as an opportunity when I get a chance to pull somebody on for an interview For like a CEO. Like right now, I'm working on the CEO of iGo.ai, which is uh, pretty cool. They're a company that's been around since 1997 and they've been developing uh, artificial general intelligence. The the founder of the company is like one of the first uh, guys that collaboratively wrote about the concept of artificial general intelligence. Yeah. And they've got basically these AI bots that they're building which is called uh, an Exocortex. So it's your AI. So it's not running it may be running on a server you may pay for for them, but it's your unique individual implementation as opposed to like Watson and Google and all that stuff where you're you're sending requests to an ai that's basically one big ai of theirs and so this is you own your ai you own your data you own everything that the ai is building and then you can shop a market of skills for your ai that can be plugged in and so the brain so to speak that learns all of your preferences and things that you you've done with it can then utilize all that background information for a new skill Um, so they have some cool like examples of how the tech works compared to like say you know some of the other competitive ones out there yeah uh and it's definitely i mean they're they're a leap ahead and they're creating this blockchain implementation to uh enable the open transparent marketplace for people to build their own ai skills to plug into their exocortex uh, well wow. really exciting stuff and yeah
0: uh, and there's a huge conversation to be had there about transhumanism i think it is and yeah. so I, I, that's sure, like yeah, super yeah. Phenomenal. yeah, So I, I do
1: some thinking about that stuff. Actually, if you went to blog. live, yeah, I've got uh, not a lot on there, but that blog I keep up because it gives a kind of a snapshot of things I've been thinking about for the past dozen years. Yeah, I've got some real old posts on there, and I filtered a few things out, but it really kind of goes through a progression of. Me kind of evolving, trying to write and just get some ideas out there. But, you know, it starts off talking about the concept of uh, anti affinity, which is a word I made up <laughs> and just being against limitations and really uh, taking action to strive against things that sort of limit our 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 uh, barriers or understanding. Mm-hmm. And uh, so from there, it's kind of evolved from like vote with your dollars, look for opportunity, think outside the box to um cryptocurrency and blockchain and this is really the technological implementation of what we've been trying to do for hundreds of years which is yeah. figure out i'll get along
0: yeah and i, I love it have you, have you read the book um the starfish and the spider
1: no but someone else recommended that to me yeah
0: i'm actually reading it right now that's okay, why right like this whole conversation has to do a lot with what they're talking about with decentralized you know government uh apps you know a whole bunch of stuff like yeah. that and how powerful it is and why it Typically wins when you put it right. against something that's centralized, yep. and so it's very interesting. Like you're talking, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm getting that a little yeah, bit. You know, I'm yeah. on a very different level, but
1: so well. I spent <laughs> a bunch of time actually consulting in the Vermont State House, and yeah. we got this blockchain bill passed this past year. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, a lot of it was basically, I was figuring out ways, conversation after conversation, to uh, illustrate in some kind of historical context, how this all applies to today, you know? Mm -hmm. So like when I do a workshop, first thing I do is I write on the board, cryptocurrency, smart contracts, and distributed ledgers. And then I cross off the prefix and go, let's talk about currency contracts and ledgers. Because the fact is that most of us walk around in society, and even if we understand that stuff to some extent, we operate on assumptions that we don't need to understand those things, right? Because everything works easily for us Americans. Right? But mm-hmm. the world doesn't work that in that such a frictionless way, and we can't all contribute to the solutions if we don't understand the problem. Yeah. Right. And so being aware of where those problems lie is really important. So I say, cross off the prefix, and I say, so, you know, currency, contracts, and ledgers are the basis of society and empires for millennia. Right. The the Chinese Empire built their empire on coded ledgers. Right. They were able to create units of account keep track of them and use codes within those ledgers in order to confirm that what came from here and showed up there and then came back here was all accurate and valid because only certain people in the network knew that code and so if there was a violation or a break in the information there's only so many people that could be you know that would be held accountable and in between if somebody tried to alter it you'd you'd know right that's the fundamental technology that built empires the difference is that today, you and I have that smart person with the ability to exercise those kinds of skill sets in our, in our pocket, in our phone, Yeah. right? So we all individually have the power of an emperor 2,000 years ago. And that's a hugely disruptive thing in our existing society and institutional structures. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's got to break it all down, but it does mean that as we start to recognize that power, we're going to reform our institutions, reform our structures in ways that better reflect the foundation that they're built on, which is real people, and so I think that's really exciting. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, basically chasing that. It's <laughs> pretty good. I like it. Right on. Well, yeah, thank you uh, for for having me down. Absolutely. Definitely. This has been uh, fun, and uh, I look forward to seeing uh, what else you have on on the show.
0: Absolutely. Cool. Cool. Thank you guys so much for watching. Uh, we have the last word from our sponsors, and everyone have a great day. That's it for today, everyone, but it doesn't have to end there. Head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or iHeartRadio to get more from New Hampshire's top entrepreneurs.